this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? Here we go. We're underway. Good morning. Good evening. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Good. Podcast number four. Here we number go. Number four. Why did we miss a week? Oh, because it was just too busy. Oh my lord. Because things get busy when you're a homeopath in 2022, trying to change the world, and when you have, <laughs> and and when you have to move your kids from one apartment to another in Brooklyn. I okay. mean, there is that too. There was that one. Yes. <laughs> anyway, but here we are. And today's topic is about something that we are intimately involved with, and that's homeopathy education, Mm. and in particular clinical training, and what it's looked like historically, sort of how how we got through the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and and what it looks like now in contemporary times, which I think is super important since homeopaths are in high demand these days. It's true. Wow. But I'd go even broader because I'd say that... Go broad. Don't hold back. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I reckon that homeopathy has so much to teach other complementary medicines, even though they might not (laughs) buy into that. Um, From what I've seen over the years, the way in which homeopathy is able to, because of its predilections and peculiarities... Navigate online learning, navigate um, tough times. Um, There are a couple of tips and tricks and secrets um, that I think are good for naturopathy, that are good for massage therapy, that are good for yoga therapy, that are good for all sorts of stuff. Can we just talk about yoga therapy for a second? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I did my first yoga session today. Since we've moved into our house, which is almost five, five five years ago. And I was pretty impressed because, you know, I've got these guns now, so I could actually hold a plank. Yeah. You got some serious guns, mister. But man, geez, it was t- that was really tough. You made a lot of noises. <laughs> some of them quite unexpected. Actually, some of them you know what, they, weren't, they weren't unexpected at all, to be honest. But, um, but it, Make it stop. It was really nice, though, to see you, you know, join me in my in my sunrise routine. I, <laughs> and what was your response when you were done? That was great. I'm going to need to be in bed by 2 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> anyway, all right. So, but, but I think what, what you're saying is that the peculiarities of homeopathy, I think this is one of the things that I love when I, when I talk about what we do, is that we, as this 230-year-old modality with its roots in ancient medicine, take really well to technological advances. It's true. Weird. It's weird, though, right? It's weird and true. Yeah. Mm. I mean, but we, and, and you know, and, and something I've been thinking a lot about is I was about to say something that I would always, that before working on the research for my thesis and really studying what homeopathy looked like and what homeopathy education and training looked like, you know, during the time of Herring and Lippi, you mm-hmm. know, so during the latter part of the 19th century, or the um, 20th the 19th century, I can't. I know where you are. You know where I am. Um, I think you're right about the coffee being backwards, the decaf and the calf. Cause you reckon? No, I was making that up. 100, anyway. 170 years ago. Anyway. 170 years ago, um, you know, I would have said... You know, things are easy for us because we're a hands-off modality. Yeah. So a talking modality, 
and yeah. an ingestive modality. But which was great for us during the pandemic and which is great for, you know, being able to provide services all around the world. For sure. From your, you know, from your home office. Mm. But it's interesting to look at homeopathy education back 170 years ago, which was for all intents and purposes the same as medical education and was often done in a clinical setting in, as you would say, a laboratory um, that there, you know, when there were... (laughs) um, you know, there was there were homeopathic hospitals or yeah. hospitals of homeopathy, yeah. and you know that was that's very different than talking about a hands-off modality, yeah. right? So I, I think it's it's an interesting conversation because I think we're a blend of both, and I'm 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 a bit of a fan of having both. Nice. Why don't we go there? Why don't we talk about education, the practice and education in yeah. 1840, 1850. First school. Set up in 1835, but it didn't really last that long. Allentown Academy here in Pennsylvania. Yeah, the the the, the funder pulled his funding, and it and it went under. They couldn't survive on course fees alone. Well, they were also teaching in German, which, given that they were mostly Germanic of origin, uh-huh. um, and that was the seat of medical knowledge at that time before it really moved to bedside practices in the Paris School of Medicine. Uh-huh. Later, right. but right? Right, right. So right. I mean, so that would have been, that would have been sort of the um, uh, a mark of an elite education would be teaching in the native language of sort of the highest level of medical education at that time. And then 1848, the next school emerged, mm-hmm. and I always get the names wrong because they change. I was hoping How you were going to say because I I know I do as well. Okay, so the words Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, yeah. and medical and college and Hahnemann are all in there. Are in the two schools. <laughs> so it's the it's the um, the is it homeopathic college of Pennsylvania, homeopathic medical college, and then there's the Hahnemann something of Philadelphia. Yeah, oh. Hahnemann Medical College. I, I need my I need my Me notes. Too. This is it's tough, right? Because in my thesis, I'm writing all about that, and I literally have sticky notes so that I get it right and with the dates because I cannot retain that. Right. So no, I'm admitting that publicly. So, now, somebody tell us. <laughs> yes. The, the, the next school was in we, 1848. Yeah. And any, but it's not so much about dates, but but I'm fascinated by what you said. The Parisian School of Medicine. What, what, what's that? Well, so the, the idea, the Paris School of Medicine was that at a time when... So, so medicine, if you think about historically, medicine was not practiced in an institutionalized setting. Mm. Medicine was practiced in someone's home. You know, there weren't, you didn't roll up to the, you know, acute care clinic, the, you know, the 24-hour flashing light medical service. There was no ER. There was no, or A&E, or A&I, accidents and injuries, right? We say A&E. A&E, accidents and emergencies. There, um, and also, just as an aside, and one of the, (laughs) I know it's slightly tangential, but one of my favorite parts of studying the history of medicine, which is something that we talked about that you loved, was the history of the ambulance. Oh my God, there were no ambulances until essentially 1970. In the 70s. Yeah. That's just crazy. And they were refurbished hearses. I mean, what a great dual income. Right. You you take people in your take them live and your hearse. Take them dead. Whatever, you know, right. turn on the, turn, turn the air on if you need to, you know, keep them warm when they're alive, cool yeah. when they're dead. Anyway, but so so what happened, though, was the, the setting for medicine started to change as medicine moved from, you know, being uh, providers going to someone's home or providers being a medicine woman 
traditional healers, you know, medical doctors had very little training, right? And and if you were if you needed a procedure, that was done by a barber surgeon or in later days just a surgeon who wasn't a doctor. They were they were like a technician, mm. right? And so all this starts to come together though, um, and, and the Paris School of Medicine is is when when that's talked about it's when medicine moves into a, a hospital setting and medicine takes place at the bedside in an institution and this is the beginning of you know of medical testing of standards standards of care of you know of all these sort of um, uh, attempts to measure what's in and out of the body inputs outputs you know measurements this is it's the first time this happens and so so it was kind of interesting that when so this is all happening and you know across the across the ocean in america you know different places in america were adapting to these new technologies at different rates mm. and philadelphia what i'm finding really compelling about my research is that there was philadelphia was even though it was probably well, it was one of three hubs in medical education and sort of and, and hospital systems at, you know, if we're talking in the later part of the 19th century. Um, but it was a little slow on the uptake of some of the biomedical, um, hmm. uh, you know, tests and inputs and things. And so, um, but what was interesting was the argument was happening at the same time in the medical societies of Pennsylvania. It was happening in the exact same way in the homeopathy world. What, what discussion? Well, I, we're going to save that. That's my talk at the JAHC conference. Right. But a little, but a little um, insight into that is just, you know, how much, and if we talk about it through the standpoint of homeopathy, how much of the new knowledge do we take on? I mean, Hahnemann, although he, he had an understanding, sort of a, from 30,000 feet understanding of like germ theory, mm. you know, the morbific agents that were transmissible from one person to another. I mean, you read, you know, I forget what year it was written, but his um, treatise on epidemics, which is basically like a regurgitation of Hippocrates on epidemics. And he, and he says, look, if the person across the street from you has an infectious disease, don't go in their house, stay far away, you know. And, uh, and then he talked about just like little bit at a time, Breathing in that bad air, little bit, little bit, little bit, so forth. So yet he, he definitely had understanding about infectious properties, so right? You're, you're saying that that knowledge, the growing knowledge, was affecting both homeopathy and conventional. A hundred percent. Right. And 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 surprisingly, at exactly the same time, same arguments were happening. Because like, how do you you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube? That's one of your favorite expressions. I love that expression. Mm. As yeah, someone who blurts things out. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I've had to apply that we to say, myself. We say uh, um, you can't put the cork back in the champagne bottle. And why would you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, in sport, <laughs> well, often, especially in those last-minute losses. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I now know from being married to a Kiwi. Let's not talk about it. Um, never. But let's talk about the clinical training part of this because that's fascinating context. So clinical training is kind of you know, out of the classroom and where the rubber hits the road, right? Yeah, totally. And so am I, mean, I going... Think about it, it's like how you do your job. It's your actual it's the application of principles. Right. So it's kind of separate from, you know, this is a, this is a um, you know, this is a femur and um, this is an eye. This is now how we go about you, the, the, uh, the uh, curing, the fixing and the, and the, and the, and the application of our art yeah. and science. Yeah. So, I was going to go really sideways, but anyway, well, 
my, it's a guess. My guess is that early homeopathy clinical training was apprenticeship model and was, excuse me, Dr. Hahnemann, my name's Staff. Can I come and sit in your office, please? They were such good buds. Yeah. What do you think? Am I kind of correct with that? Uh, I'm not, I mean, I would say yes, but no, because, I mean, think about Herring and Hahnemann never even met. Well, they talked a lot over the highways and the byways. Lots of letters. They sent letters. I don't know how many. I mean, there were there were certainly a few, but but I think that there was, you know, people studied the philosophy in the very beginning, very mm-hmm. deeply, and yeah. then just worked on applying it. And you know, if you do think you mean about, in their own offices without clinical training? I, I'm going to say yes. Okay. And and was Benninghausen the first non-medical doctor to practice homeopathy? Uh, no, probably not. I think there was this guy Ziv that took. He was a priest who took homeopathy to Russia. Really? Yeah. Started with Z. I can't remember the name. Might have been Ziv. Oh, I've um, never heard of him. I need to find out. Yeah, and some um, and some of the and other places, the Jesuits um, were part of the movement of homeopathy early to is it Chile or Brazil? Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm a little loose on that. Um, but anyway, no, there were some non-medical applications of mm-hmm. homeopathy in the very early days, 1820s, 1830s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But you know, in you know, fast forward to 1833, Herring arrives in, you know, in Philadelphia yep. or in Pennsylvania. Yep. And the first school, you know, the Allentown Academy, as we mentioned, teaching in German, but they were all medical doctors. It was postgraduate oh. education. Well, and, and also all men. And all men. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, that must have been fun. <laughs> but so, so clinical training, I mean, I'm going to say there wasn't such a thing as, I mean, if we think about the model of sort of how medicine was delivered at those times. I mean, there were, you know, there were European hospitals by then. I mean, Hahnemann, you know, in Vienna, right, when he was making his way not before he went to Transylvania. But but it was a... It, I don't know that homeopathy was in the very beginning practiced in that way. Hahnemann had taken himself out a bit, don't yeah. you think? Yeah. Do you think that... Because I'm going, so when did clinical training actually begin. I'm thinking, is it Kent's postgraduate course? No, 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 no. Because 1890s, I, no? No, it would have been... Before then? Much before then? Sure. Oh, okay. Because it, it would have happened in the in the, the two schools for which the names we cannot get right. Right, the two schools. One became the other one in Philadelphia. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll get the names. I have it right sitting around me. But, well, what do we know about it then? Well, I mean, it was hospital-based. Okay. You know, so or the, it was clinical. It was clinically based, but it was also apprentice based. And the rounds. And the making rounds. Okay. Making house calls. I mean, that that book that um, uh, what's his name, Nur, Calvin Nur, Herring's grandson, wrote the life of mm-hmm. Herring. Um, 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 Sorry, I was wrong. Husband of his wife. Husband of his wife. <laughs> Husband of Harry's daughter. <laughs> well, oh, that's it, his son-in-law. You said grandson. Oh, sorry, son-in-law. Yeah. I'm going, <laughs> I can't pathetic. find... After my head injury yeah. recently. Oh. So, uh, Harry's son-in-law, Calvin yeah. Nur, um... And he, he wrote this great book called The Life of Herring and so many stories about house calls or about people, you know, sending a letter. You know, as I've been reading all of these letters between, you know, Herring and Lippy and Nur and just going through all of their, you know, the family papers and so forth. And you see how, you know, who's running these letters? They just had, they had, I guess, their servants or their, their groomsmen or whomever who would just take these, you know, these letters back and forth because sometimes there are three or four of them in a day. Yeah. 
you know, mm. oh, I've just received your letter. I've sat down. I thank you for, you know, thank <laughs> you for sending this. My man has just delivered it to me, and it is with immediacy that I am responding about Mrs. So and So and her bladder stone. You know, it's like, and then they run it back, and that's how it, you know that's how it happened. Kind of like our acute clinic, right? Well, exactly. That was before Slack. Yeah. That notification was slack. Yeah, way, which is the way it's done today. Instead yeah. of sending your fine, your fine gentleman to, you know, <laughs> three blocks away to deliver the message and to wait for the mm. kindly reply. Mm. So I think that's kind of what happened. And then you kind of fast forward and there, you know, it happens in educational institutions, I think, as opposed to in medical institutions. I mean, if you think about Hahnemann Hospital, mm. right? So there would have been, you know, up until whatever the four, well, between the 20s and the 40s, I think there was still homeopathy being taught from the 40s to the 60s it was an elective and after that it it, it existed not at all mm. and i mean there's so many ways to look at this because homeopathy also shifts in the medical setting to become less and less and less and less about hahnemann's overarching philosophy and application of principles into an eclectic therapeutic model and i don't mean eclectic medicine but at, at that time you know if we're talking about yep. the latter part of the of the 19th century, you know, there was no holds barred. Mm. So you, you know, you had people giving low potencies, high potencies, you know, material doses, giving, you know, nostrums or, you know, uh, patent drugs along with their um, homeopathic remedies, give, you know, prescribing therapeutically. Mm. Um, so it was, it was quite different, mm. right? And, and, and then it branches out and then it becomes this, this new wave of homeopathy, which after homeopathy really did a little crash and burn, kind of 1880-ish, you know, which everybody blames it on the Flexner report. It's homeopathy lost its way because it ceased to be practiced according to its principles. It was practiced just as giving potentized substances for therapeutic indications. Yeah. You know, that's as good as you can... as you make it, as you're lucky. Um, And so homeopathy, as it's meant to be, kind of disappeared. And when it it started to come back, that's when I think things change. I mean, that's where, I think if we're going to talk about clinical education, right, I think talking about it in a more contemporary sense is probably important. Yeah, before we do that, just want to go back, because I realized when I said Kent 8090, that is actually um, relevant, because... While we think of Kent's postgraduate course and the lectures on Materia Medica were transcripts of yep. Kent's lectures, it was actually a teaching clinic. Um, yeah, talk about the numbers. Those the numbers, numbers are phenomenal. Yeah, well, 40,000, this is a number I remember, 40,000 clients were seen over 10 years. But how many graduates were there of that program? It was 30, like 30 so something, 35 right? 35 graduates. So it's, it's really interesting because how, those numbers, how do we. It's 4,000. Uh, maybe I just got the number wrong. Uh-oh. No, no, no. <laughs> All of a sudden, it, this podcast is going to need a full-time fact checker. <laughs> yeah, it might have been 4,000 clients a year. Well, that's 40, over 10 years. Uh, no, oh, okay. that's it. That so, makes sense. Yeah. So 4,000 clients a year. That's you so think, interesting. That's really, that's our, our number. Our goal is 5,000 clients mm, a year mm, over mm, five mm. years to have a 25,000 case. Well, when, and when you think about it, I mean, that's a truckload of clients per day. Yeah. Yeah. To do do the math. Anywho, let's fast forward then, because I mean, maybe more contemporary times. My um, introduction into the teaching of homeopathy involved um, the classroom for a while, and then I did get into clinical training, 
in a number of different places. And the model, and I mean, what I wanted to speak about a little bit were some of the models that I saw. That be yeah yeah. Um, I, I remember one of the impressive ones. I was doing a um, a lecture in uh, a couple of lectures in Canada at um, Toronto and went to CCNM. Um, Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, and at the time it was in the motel in the north. That's the way I kind of remember <laughs> it. It was, a str- I think it was actually some sort of an old motel uh, with very long corridors, and off the corridors were the, the clinic, clinic rooms, rooms. Yeah. and um, with this um, excellent host and lovely, lovely gentleman, I put on my white coat and then went from room to room and opened the door in the middle of the consultation and said hi and then listened for a little bit, everything okay, and then we moved on to the next room, to the next room, to the next room. I don't like that model. Yeah, really interesting. See, I'm not a fan either. But the thing was... That was the model I was trained in. Good. Okay. And so that that training model has advantages and disadvantages and limitations and, and, um, and, and some probably some good things. But... You know, at the end of the day, the supervisor is relying on an excellent synopsis of what actually went on in that clinical right. setting. And obviously, one of the limitations is not a lot. Well, I mean, perhaps no um, no consultation ever was seen in full right? In using that model. Well, can I tell you what? That's when I, I took over a teaching clinic, running a teaching clinic back in 2010 or 11, something like that. Mm. And... Um, that, that was the model that was used. Mm-hmm. And there were all these all these cases going on at the same time. And mm-hmm. then students who had never been monitored taking an entire case mm. would come back with a recommendation. And I was like, based on what? I mean, it just never seemed like enough information. Yeah, exactly. You know? So so we've both had the same experience from the yeah. same model. The, another model um, at a, a college... And that Hang on, can I say one thing? I could How that could work really well oh, yeah. is if you're doing very medically oriented homeopathy yeah, because right. you've got like sort of have checklists mm. of, you know, did you get this information? And one of the clinics where I used to teach or supervise, um, they had a... The students would go into the consultation room with a, with a checklist. Well, that, but that comes from medical homeopathy in yeah. the 50s and 60s. Exactly. You know, Elizabeth... Is it Hubbard Wright or Wright Hubbard? Wright Hubbard. Right, Wright Hubbard. Right, 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 yeah. Hubbard. You know, her checklists and, and, and questioning yeah. um, style was, uh, the you know, just that. And, that was the standard. And that's where it came. Yeah. That's where it came from. My own, uh, one of the schools I, I supervised clinic in, in in Sydney in Australia was, was uh, you'd have a, you'd turn up on a, it was usually Saturday and it was a mm-hmm. real struggle. Yeah. 10 o'clock to or 9 o'clock till, I don't know, 5 and you'd sit there with the students that had signed into the clinic that day and you'd wait. For a client to turn up. For a client to turn I've up. I've been there. And there was a lot of waiting. Yeah. And a lot of going through the files going, well, let's, let's put this one in front of that file, or, uh-huh. you know. And eventually what happened is that the students would be taking the cases of the students. Ugh, that is so ethically... Oh, my... Oh, I can't even... I've seen that happen and... Yeah. I find that really difficult. Really troublesome. Especially because I think this is a, sort of a good intro, entry point to say, you know, for some people they might not have any idea of what happens in a homeopathy school mm. teaching clinic. And, you know, if you're, if you're working with what would has now been termed classical homeopathy, which is sort of a dirty word, I, I sort of like just 
homeopathy or Hahnemann's homeopathy because they're they're really are offshoots and kind of need to say what it is. But, you know, the way that it's evolved, especially if you if you're working in a community that understands Hahnemann's theory of chronic disease mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, the, the idea of the simple language and getting to the deepest part of the case also, because that's that's sort of one side of it. And that that can very easily turn into some psychological, you know, (laughs) extravaganza. The other side of it is what's actually happening in the body and what, you know, what are all, what are all the ways that the totality of symptoms, in other words, the, 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 the aggregate of everything that's happening within the person, how do we, how do we see that? And that involves, you know, a very careful investigation of both the mental, emotional, and physical symptoms. So you're, you're kind of doing two or three things at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so that means that a case, especially if, if you're in a teaching clinic, a case will take two hours, you know, to really make sure that, you know, the, the, that the, the students are seeing the full exploration of what... You are know, you talking about case analysis or case taking? Case taking. Case, case taking. taking. Got it. You know, because if you think about it, you really can take a chronic case in under an hour. Totally. I mean, I've done it a gazillion times working in, you yeah. know, an outreach clinic, yeah. right? And it's, and it's um, I like how Jeremy Sher calls it no BS homeopathy, which is what, you know, he and Camilla have sort of set up in the, you know, in the work that's being done in, in Tanzania. And, and the idea is that you don't, you don't have to get into so much of the story. Now, I think when, when students are learning and you've got to demonstrate best practices. What are all the moves that a homeopath can make? And you, so a case will take longer, even if it's a faculty member taking a case. I mean, I, I, I'll do the full show at two hours. Even you. I went to two and a half hours. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And I was riveted. I, I don't even know. It was more, it was a really interesting client. Yeah. I, I kind of was happy to keep talking. Yeah. yeah. But you're not just having a conversation. I mean, it's a really guided no, 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 exploration, no. right? Yeah. All right. So if you've got that amount of time, there are all these things that you have that you know, that the students have to see. And so if, if, if they're not being observed, that's a lot of time to go in the wrong direction. Now, that, that is exactly what happened in my own personal experience of clinical training when I was a student because clinical training was outsourced, right? For and real? You yeah. were, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so we had to go find our own clients. Yeah. And then we would take their case. And then we would take the case notes to a supervisor but they didn't watch you? No. Ah. Not at all. Cause and, and, so, and so the only face-to-face component of that experience was sitting down with the supervisor. It was like the blind leading the blind. It's totally because, it, and this is, if, you know, for someone who might be just listening, you know, to this and saying, wait a second, what is this, um, you know, what are you talking about? So and if, you go, if you go to a homeopath, right, and a consultation takes, depending on the, you know, the, the sort of skill level and and personal proclivities of the practitioner anywhere from you know one to two and a half hours now right. there are people who take a 10-hour case whatever well that's a that's an outlier we'll just leave that but you know in order to be efficient at your job and knowing you get all the information you need you know one to two hours let's say yeah so so when students are taking cases I mean there there are so many kind of nuanced moves that a practitioner makes to ensure that they're getting the information. Yeah. You've got to be observed, yeah. 
right? So like, and, and critiqued, and critique, and gently critiqued. You know, uh, well, it's cr- critique doesn't mean criticize. Yeah, critique, you know, means hang on, you could have. There are different ways of doing that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think a teaching clinic needs to demonstrate best practices. You know, it can't just be watching a bunch of students take cases. It's got to be, you know, highly skilled, you know, clinicians who are demonstrating the ways in which the job is done. And that, and so, mm. in all fairness, because I I think you know, there are a lot of clinical training programs that for whatever reason, aren't able to do that. And I think, you know, this is where we have to talk about sort of the, the that fallow time in homeopathy education where you were lucky to get clinical education, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, that's fair. I mean, because if you think about it, before the technology, before there was, you know, really high quality, real time, you know, um, live video um, technology available, mm-hmm. it meant you had to go to a place, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, you and I, we moved, we moved you know, you moved country, uh, moved you know, hemisphere, hemisphere, right? Continent. I, I moved to the Midwest, which for me was like, <laughs> that's almost the same. That's the same. I, uh, it was definitely a, a transition, but, but <laughs> you had to like be somewhere in order to do it. And then because, you know, so you either had people who were lucky enough to live near a homeopathy school with a clinical training program or people who had the flexibility in their life to move to that place. Mm. Right. Mm. But that meant that school operated on the weekends, yeah. you know, once a month, mm. which we won't even go into that now, how, how stressful that is. But, but it, you know, we recognize, you and I, we've talked about this so much that the way of getting good at homeopathy is to see it a lot and then to do it a lot. Numbers, numbers. Numbers. Repetition. Right? Practice. The hours that you spend in that chair yeah. watching and talking about what's done in real time is so critical. And so, there, you know, in... And I and I say this genuinely in all fairness. There were there were it was impossible to deliver that much clinical training for many years because because of the model the because of the model, model the yeah. limitation yeah. right that's so interesting so clinical training involves well involves many things but one is a, a period of observation yeah I, uh, students newbies being told you know this is a bike you know look at all the things on the bike the features of the bike. Before then, the integration and application of that. All right, now get on the bike and I'll hold the back seat or we'll put on the trainer wheels. Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the things that happens, though, is that that gets done by video in a lot of schools. Right. Right? Observation hours are yeah, like watching yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, watching cases, watching people's cases being taken is compelling. Cherry-picked cases. Cherry-picked cases. I mm. mean, we know that there are a few in circulation of you with a full head of hair. Hey. So I'm just saying, you shaved your head on the millennium. Now, why is that important? Other than seeing you with that hair is a treat. That's a mere 22 years ago. 22 years ago. But times have changed. (laughs) Pathology has changed. The homeopath's job has changed because people are sicker. We've got pathologies that didn't exist. You know, if you look back 22 years ago, the number of people who with, you know, um, neurodivergency were not coming to, we Mm. wouldn't even use that term. Autism, how many autistic clients? I mean, I didn't really see a lot of autistic clients in my practice until, like, I I remember like 2006, seven, there was a shift. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe a few before then, but that was like the big shift. But look now, what about pandas? Mm. Pans and pandas, Mm -hmm. right? So how, if if you don't see cases, oh, COVID, long COVID, post, you know, people who have been um, grappling with lots of, you know, medical interventions that may have impacted their health. Well, well, that's what we see. Mm. 
if you're watching videos, yeah, it's good because you're seeing the process. But those conversations, I mean, how much time do you think we spend talking about what happens in the console? After the console? Yeah. It's easily hour to hour. Oh, it's... Well, it's usually two four hours. I'd yeah. say four hours. Yeah. Four hours minimum. So a two-hour case gets four hours of discussion plus other work. Analysis. Analysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if we do that, we do that with our students. They, they see about 100 cases. So we do that live. Yep. Um, and that it's not as if other models don't do that live, but it, it I just remember that part of the process used to be compressed, and sometimes there's three students waiting right. in a line as you know the the analysis and evaluation goes on yeah and that's not that's not that doesn't what's the word can that's not conducive i can't imagine it. i mean when i because it was funny one one of the i've the, kind of run a few different well we both yeah. have run you know a handful of clinical training programs and they're each different and every one of them has their own benefit yeah but it's funny that you and i both landed on the same place of how we like to see it like i at first it was you know different groups taking different cases and then presenting their analysis. That was kind of the typical model. Mm -hmm. And when I started teaching in a program where, first of all, I couldn't understand what the students were talking about, I said, well, I think we're going to do better if we all learn from the same case and deconstruct the cases together. And we've switched our model totally to that. Do you, I mean, do you feel like that's, we never really talk about this as like, I think it's hugely beneficial. Oh, good. As long... <laughs> well, it is. I probably should have asked that off air. <laughs> no, it's hugely beneficial because, firstly, it gives students the opportunity to see homeopathy through the lens where they're at. And, yep. and so if they're, if they're a third-week student or a third-year student, they've just seen the same case. Yeah. And they're going to be asking questions... From those perspectives, that's enormously useful, and you see exponential leaps in. It's it's educationally yeah. very sound. I it think. totally is. Yeah. How many people do you have in your clinic yesterday? Forty something. Do you oh. know how many I had in my clinic Monday and Tuesday? Yeah. How did you get eighty-two? Why Why did you get eighty-two students? I'm just saying. <laughs> amazing I, when i looked at the number i was like wow yeah. and it, it sounds like it's so many but but hang on here's a question oh, sorry. Yeah. because is it beneficial for all 80 students and i th and i wonder you know because this this is one thing i'd say it's because you know there's different types of students right yeah and I, I don't know how you classify them but you know there are students and it doesn't matter what model they of education they're going to use they're going to nail it yeah because they're committed they get it they're they're passionate they're entrepreneurial they're good managers, they're good clinicians, you know. And then there's those folks, and I think that's where we've probably got it right. There are these people in the kind of in the middle, mm. and and we we attend to those folks. Well, because the small group work, right. you know, that's the thing. Mm. So I think we should say that when, the, you know, there are 82 students and we're broken into groups, and there are, you know, when you're working with the advanced students. So I had more than half, I think I had in 50-some were advanced students. Mm. And they're, you know, we're guiding through the process. And then the newer students are working with another teacher taking them through, okay, this is what you've seen, and, and really breaking it down to their level. And then we come back together at the end of the day, and the advanced students, you know, kind of show their stuff that they've really mastered this. Now, there's real benefit in that as well, actually, because, you know, if you're a newbie student and you're looking at a complex chronic case, yeah. now your oh job is not to analyze that chronic case, yeah. but to be able to project and go, oh, in, in six months' time or in a year's time, I can be doing that? Yeah. Okay, it I removes think, some of the anxiety, I doesn't really it? I really think it does. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a real benefit having you know, those kind of multi-level um, classes. And you know what else? This is another thing that I've noticed because, you know, sometimes, and, and programs are developed in different ways. And I think, you know, I always say you, f- you find the program that suits you. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're kind of talking about what has worked for us and for, you know, for our student body. Um, but so one of the things that I really, that I think about a lot is, um, you know, we opted to have a program where students can come to clinic in their first week. They don't even know the terminology yet. Mm. But an analogy that I use a lot is that, you know, homeopathy takes a certain degree of fitness (laughs) and you have to be able to do a lot of things in the background. If we go back to where we started with the yoga analogy, you know, um, I I love this analogy so much because when, when you first start with yoga, it's like a stretching exercise. You know, it's not even an asana at that point. And you're basically grunting your way through getting into a pose, right? And then the more adept you get, you're able to work with your breath. So the bodily motions become second nature, and then you can focus on your breath. And that's all in preparing you for being ready to do the meditative work and the breath work that takes you to a higher level of consciousness. Mm. So we take that idea and we put it into the, in terms of homeopathy clinical training. You know, one of the things that I talk a lot about with the students in the beginning is, you know, you got to learn how to sit for two hours, you know, and if your body isn't used to it, it's like a real thing, Mm. you know, your butt goes numb, (laughs) you know, you get fidgety, you get squirrely, your monkey mind takes over, you start leaving, you know, something that is a deep, um, uh, you know, something that touches you deeply for maybe your own personal pain or experience, you could leave your consciousness and go somewhere else to go to your happy place to not be thinking about it. So all of those skills you can do in the beginning where the learning, the high level learning is passive, but you're still hearing it. Mm. You're taking in the language, you know, you're not going to be talking about what to do with developed Sora in semester one, but you've heard that developed Sora exists. And you know that if that's happening, there's a certain clinical move you might not make, mm. right? But it, but all you're responsible for in the first couple of weeks is sitting on your butt for two hours, you know? So that idea that you're developing the clinician first by developing the physicality and the skills, you know, the note taking, being able to sit and focus to look at to look at the client while taking notes you know when you're when you are just in practice mode you're able to develop those skills to try different things you know and so and and then the other thing about it is when if you get students in the into the clinic early enough on they they don't sort of um Oh, act like they're stoned. <laughs> like, you know what? I call it bong talk. Sorry, it's really terrible. But, you know, you get a, you get somebody with like, you know, a couple of years. I know of, what you're talking about. Right? Yeah. And, and, and if they haven't actually seen the job in action, the conversations in the classroom are bizarre. because they're very theoretical. Totally theoretical. Yeah, now we see that in our program because where those students have not done a lot of clinic and have got to advanced stages of their didactic training. Yeah. And I've never heard it called bong talk. I love it. Oh, you haven't? Oh my gosh. You haven't been in my classroom enough. Yeah, it's bong talk. Because it's really theoretical and it's like, that's, it's not useful. (laughs) It's interesting, right? But you know, that's after dinner talk when you're with your friends at the conference, but. And it's speculative. And it it can be speculative. Mm. So, so what happened, and also what students do, if they don't have the the foundational skills for what the job of homeopathy really is, then they start to rely on, I shouldn't even say they as students, I think we, anyone, mm. would start to rely on whatever skills you already have. And because we're dealing with human nature in a physical as well as mental and emotional place, we go to, you know, 
the, the speculation about why they are making their choices in their relationships and so forth, right? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting so that when, they are in, when they're in the clinical setting and it's like, that's all well and good, but their gallbladder's broken. Yeah. You know, that's all well and good, but we've got all of this simple language. What, what happens is when, when students are exposed over and over and over again to best practices and sort of pushed in, you know, to stay in that space without speculation, then they can get to higher levels of thinking right? Mm. And you can still, even in the very beginning, engage in that, even if you don't know how to use the repertory yet, or you, you know, whatever, right? When you talk about best practices, yeah, I reckon um, there's, there has been a shift in the last number of years, because, you know, when I, do you remember homeopathic symposium? Oh, yeah, of course. All right. When I think about it, I remember the excitement about that in some homeopathic circles. Oh, I could do some clinical training hours with this expert. Yeah. You and 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 now when I think about it, I go, "Are you kidding me?" A cherry-picked asynchronous case. Yeah. With a, a model answer that is also, uh, you know, analyzed out of the, you know, the 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 uh, the expert. Uh, I'm uh, I'm not a fan of asynchronous learning anymore i think i think it's got it's got some advantages of flexibility and time but not a lot of define that for people who might not be familiar with oh you know like in the can a a, a lecture that's pre-recorded and videotaped or like if it's a clinic yeah a video it's so it's a videotape thing which then you can consume the the consumer can consume whenever they want as opposed to it's live it's four o'clock everyone get here now yeah and that 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 leap of and it's been really with you know go to meeting and zoom and yeah and, and and i don't know teams and whatever else the technology is that's enabled it but it is exponentially better oh my gosh and and i think because you know while i'm just really happy that there were people who had the wherewithal to put those kinds of trainings together when that was the best Thing that was available. Totally, right? and it'll probably change. You know, in the, exactly. In the next like I feel like we're in a sweet spot now, which is great. Mm-hmm. And you know, but but now you, that you can be in the moment, the other thing about that there there are two things. One is that um, we don't always get it right, and the hardest move in homeopathy is second prescription. Sure. Second prescription being the one after the first prescription has acted. And and homeopathy, you know, once you get past the fallacy of the similimum and finding somebody's soulmate in nature and that crazy talk, you realize that you're just working sick people. <laughs> Sorry, every time I say it you laugh. But but you're working sick people back to health. Yeah. And that is a that's a journey. It's not a it, it's not like homeopaths are some magicians that see deep into your soul and I, I hate that. I, it really irritates me because oh, it's I like... I see deep into, into your soul. Okay, well, that's fair. But, you so know, but it feels like a charlatan thing to me. That's yeah. really terrible to say. Mm. But I feel like, you know, with when you really work with really sick people, like if you've got a kid with Crohn's disease sitting across the table from you, don't like get into all this, you know, let me just study the trees for six weeks because of this. He's got tree energy or some, you know, I don't know. Sorry, it's so cynical, but... But it's not one, it's, it's rarely one remedy. Yeah. Almost never. I mean, Hahnemann says in aphorism 171, in order to unravel the deepest level of chronic disease, you know, and he's talking then about antisorics, but it's still, I mean, anybody who's been in practice and has moved the needle for a person with a complex, 
you know, chronic issue knows that it just, it takes time, it takes focus, and not like you're changing remedies every week or even every year sometimes, but you are, but you are focused on the movement of the case. And I think when students see that in real time and they see incremental movement towards greater levels of health, as opposed to jumping around, they get the confidence to not feel like, oh, I need to find that one answer. Mm-hmm. I think that's unattainable. And I think that I think that, that model doesn't build confidence or competence. Do you think? Well, I've never been a fan of it. Yeah. I don't believe it. I don't, uh, oh, I don't even know what to say about it. It's, it's so far... It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's always been so far from my working life yeah um and while interesting no doubt that there's interesting theories and models and you know um it's i've always left left a seminar or a you know reading you know someone's opinion about i don't know you know um thinking what would a client of mine say to me to make me think that what would a client say about their health to make me go well it's a a such and such. It's a zebra. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be a zebra. Got it. They would say, because, it's, you know, it's just so black and white. No. <laughs> Sorry, I was totally cynical there. I apologize for my cynicism. Um, we've got to wrap up because we have a research meeting in a minute. Can I just add one more thing? Damn. So the other thing that I think about a lot with clinical training is, and I, and I think you and I do this kind of differently, which I like, and I and Kelly probably does it, Kelly Callahan, who's our, who also teaches in our clinic. Um, but one of the things that I've been into for the past couple of years, um, more than before, is I, I've realized that students, um, there's a little bit of, it's not analysis paralysis in how do I approach the case, but when you get into the weeds, there's sort of the, there's the mechanical part of homeopathy, right? So, you know, translating symptoms to rubrics, for example, is always difficult. And I, you know, when I started to think about, especially with working sort of one-on-one, you know, and supervising students, what are the what are the idiosyncratic ways that individuals make decisions and what are the things that we can do that are really process oriented so that you always know if i'm stuck i just do this mm. and at least it's going to get me to you know from point a to point b and so i've been doing a lot of what oh <laughs> shush your favorite <laughs> remedy um but so what i've been what i've been doing is working on mechanics a lot it's kind of like teaching math order of operations mm. You know, and so if you can sort of let go of a lot of the speculative things that have seeped into our practice and say, okay, if I can really be clear in this analysis, then there are, you know, there are certain steps that I can take. And so I've been working a lot with teaching students how to use, right now we use radar opus, right? And so we're working with the, um, the Adonis um, new repertory and it's like okay so why don't we just use it let's try to use it to its full advantage which for someone who had to change software packages a few years ago is hilarious hilarious hilarious. but you know working with the tools and really helping you know Mm. to do that so that and it's not like the tools give you the answer there's no way but you have to learn how to use them to find information Mm -hmm. and so what we've been working on a lot is you know, I've been giving answers. So what I've been ending clinic with is here are 10 different ways that you could repertorize this, mm-hmm. or here are five different things. And these are the next three things that you can do to potentize your nice. learning. And all of that, all of that is live. Yeah. Yeah. How, how many clients do you think, like ideally, how many clients yeah. would the average student need to see 
to feel competent and competent along with excellent didactic learning by the time they've finished their schooling. I mean, we've landed on 100. Right. And I think 100 is... I think 100 is the threshold. Like when I hear, sorry, my cynical voice is going to happen again, but when I hear that people just watch 10 video cases and write them up and that counts for their, it makes me want to cry Mm. because I look at our students who are amazing and who might have 75 cases under their belt and say, I'm struggling. Mm. You know, and then, of course, our students get their one-on-one supervision. So they've got, you know, it's not just in the big clinic classroom. But even with that, I mean, that's that just really speaks to it. And I think, you know, especially if you're, I mean, I was going to say, especially if you're working with non-medical homeopaths, but there's a different, there's a different learning curve that happens with medically trained folks, right? Because they've got to switch from their sort of their, you know, the more reductionistic way that they've learned to yeah. tackle problems. But, you know, you're working with non-medical people. And if we really want to elevate our profession to this place where someone who has not been to medical school, who has, you know, really solid foundational training in anatomy, physiology, and pathology, and so forth. But you've got to talk about these cases. You know, you've got, if somebody, if you've got it, you know, I think about all the kids in my practice that are dealing with really complex issues. You know, the, the level of responsibility that I feel, well, I wouldn't want to send somebody out to do that to, you know, and not be prepared. Yeah. Right. And so, I, you know, I just, I hope that as, as we move forward as a profession and the demand is higher than ever, that we all take really seriously what it means to do this job. Yeah. Right. Love it. Wow. That's, wow. I get really passionate about You're this. You're all worked up. I'm all worked up. <laughs> all right. I totally get worked up. Time for up. a cup of tea and a bex. Yes. Our, my goodness, no. It's time for a cup of tea and our research meeting. All right. Let's do all that. All right. Let's do it again. Should we do it again? All right. All right. See you next time. Bye, everybody. Jump. Ciao.